Stoicism, I would argue that Epicureanism is the second most influential school in Rome. Lucretius takes Roman philosophy in a radically different direction from Stoicism. Very little is known about Lucretius, or Lucretius. He was born in 94 BC, died in 55. And it, it seems Cicero published his unfinished work, De Rerum Natura, in 54. Considered as literature, his poem is one of the finest examples of didactic poetry, poetry with a lesson to teach. As is typical of Roman authors, he reaches back to the Greek models for inspiration. The form of the didactic poem starts with Hesiod and is attempted by other Greek pre-Socratic philosophers too, Parmenides and uh, Empedocles. For the content of the poem, what it hopes to teach, he will turn to the Greek philosopher Epicurus. Epicurus lived from 341 BC till about 270 BC. In 310, he founded a school on the island of Lesbos. But in 307-6, he moved to Athens and called his school there the Garden. Like Plato's Academy, his school of philosophy was open to all people, women, slaves, and even included Hatira, the high-class prostitutes. But it differed from the Academy and the Lyceum of Aristotle in that it offered a home, an atmosphere of friends living together. Epicureanism is not much concerned with the theoretical structures which explain nature or our understanding of nature, although this theoretical framework is offered and explained. This philosophy is rather concerned with a way of life, living the good life. The followers of Epicurus accordingly sought and adopted a particular lifestyle. To attain this end of a good life, Epicurus offered maxims or guidelines for living called dicta. He was deeply revered by his followers. In fact, he was deified. Epicurus had little use for either the dialectical concerns of Plato's Academy or its mathematical speculation. Such things were useful only insofar as they applied to life. Physical speculation, too, was only useful as it aided life. In this case, by understanding how the world works, we need not fear it, and hence we can lead a peaceful life. Unlike what Platonism would assert, that the true reality lies in a world apart from us, in the world of ideas, what is most real is what we experience. Our sense data never lie. Sense data are true, because we must always refer back to them to any judgments we make about the world. When I am experiencing something, it does no good to say to me, no, you're not experiencing that. I am, and there is nothing further to say. Secondly, sense data bring along sensations of pleasure or pain. These are the ultimate motivations, the ultimate good or bad. All creatures move to and from these sensations. All statements about good and evil refer back to these feelings. If you study the political philosophy of, of Hobbes or the ethical philosophy of Bentham, you will see their inspiration. Epicurus's overriding goal in physics was to dispel supernatural beliefs about nature. We live in fear of divine powers and demons, but this is a fear which can be removed by a mechanical understanding of the world. He was not interested in developing his own physical theories. Instead, he found a completely adequate explanation already offered by the atomists through Democritus.
The world is made up of two elements, atoms and void. Atoms are literally uncuttables, the smallest bits of matter. They are in constant motion. These atoms combine to form objects and are responsible for the qualities of that object, the color, texture, shape. These qualities do not exist apart from the objects, apart from the collection of atoms which make up that thing. There are no degrees of reality. Again, a point raised against Plato. The atoms, the experience of those atoms, and our consciousness of the experiences are all equally real, and they are all fundamentally atoms. He makes one break with Democritus on his theory, though. For Democritus, the atoms moved through a swirl, but for Epicurus, they fall through space. This theory is heading straight for a deterministic view of life in which all things and events are the direct result of some billiard ball mechanics, and that will not do for someone who wants to account for free will. Epicurus, being a believer of free will, offers the idea that these atoms, as they fall, spontaneously swerve or veer off course, thus giving a randomness to the world. Experience puts no limit on space or time, so there can be no limit on the number of atoms in the world. Infinite atoms in infinite space, but not an infinite variety of atoms, or we would have no consistency of experience. For example, atoms recombine time after time, year after year, to produce apples. There is a pattern and a structure to the way in which atoms interact. But Epicurus avoids the type of explanations that are common to Aristotle and Plato, that the apple is generated as some reflection of an idea of an apple. In fact, the mechanical explanation completely replaces any teleological explanation. When the right atoms appear in the right combination, they produce or create something, say, an apple. It just happens. The apple is not created for any reason or purpose. The atoms have simply joined together. One interesting consequence of this theory is that in an infinite world of an infinite supply of atoms moving through infinite space, all possible combinations of atoms have been and are formed. Everything possible is somewhere actual. The number of coexistent universes is infinite because there is nothing to prevent it. Coexistent universes are all the rage among some black hole physicists today. But... That something is possible does not mean at all that it is possible here. We have limits which affect our world. The half-man, half-horse centaur is not possible in our world. He might even argue that it's not possible anywhere, given the nature of the atoms. You look at Lucretius, uh, Book 5, Line 878, following. But the change of atoms through time is part of nature. There is a regular cycle of change to the universe. The material of our world generates and degenerates according to principles, and the task of science is to determine these principles. Human beings are organisms like any other creature, and are collections of atoms like all other objects. We, like everything else, undergo change, changes of atom. This cannot be avoided. There are two kinds of atoms conjoined in us. Our body has, has its atoms, and our mind has its own, which are finer and smaller. Epicurus has two goals in mind here. 
First, he needs to account for ethical actions and mental functions. Second, he wants to offer an account, which will dispel the fear of death, one of the prime tormentors of our life. When we die, our soul atoms are dispersed like the body atoms. We need no longer fear Hades. On a related point, then, what do we make of the gods? Should we dismiss them en masse? Epicurus says no. The stories told about them are certainly garbage, but the universality of belief in gods must be based on some reality. So, sure, gods exist. They seem to be used as standards of perfection. Happiness, beauty, human form, Greek language, whatever. But happiness and immortality require special atoms of very fine light. They must dwell in intermundia, not in this world, (laughs) so as not to be affected by the decay of this world. They must not be affected in any way by the concerns of mankind, else their happiness would vary. They would not be perfect. So prayers and beliefs in the gods are futile. The soul atoms transmit feeling through the body. When we see something, what happens is that the atomic film comes off the thing and enters our eyes. From here, our soul atoms relay the image to our mind. Atomic films that are damaged in transit give rise to error, dreams, fantasies. Human beings come into existence when all the conditions for the atoms properly uniting have been met. Mankind has no purpose, no creator, no destiny. Our good is pleasure, and the highest good is sustained, lasting, and secure pleasure. People are not tied or bound together by nature, but by the advantages which flow from associations. Security, sharing, laughter. Laws and governments ought to serve to secure for the people this mutual advantage. Why are we not happy, then, we who live in communities? Our false thoughts and misplaced desires lead us astray. We fear gods, we fear death, we seek power, money, fame, glory. Pleasure in itself does not bring with it a guarantee of lasting pleasure or of endurance. I think of uh, Aristotle's eudaimonia in this sense. We need to look back at the, the totality of a life. We need to choose pleasures wide, wisely and with intelligence. This is practical wisdom, a wisdom which balances pleasures and pains and avoids pleasures which lead in the long run to greater pains. The moral virtues which we praise are simply the means for attaining permanent pleasures. No other justification can be sought. We can approach pleasure from two directions as well. Some are kinetic, that is, the result of activity, and some are catastomatic, they're static, they result from stable conditions. Pleasures of the body tend to be kinetic, while the mind can also attain a state of quiet, a peace of mind. When we remove the fear of gods and death, when we understand the good we should aim for lies not in power and material wealth, we become calm. This static pleasure is what we really seek, the repose of the spirit. Mental pleasures are superior to those of the body. Epicureanism is a way of life which seeks to develop and practice the good life. To this end, Epicurus urged the suppression of desires which go beyond our natural needs, the learning of physics, the cultivation of friendships, the the enjoyment of balanced pleasures, even religious activities, to remind us 
the tranquility of the gods.